one of the frustrations in meeting so many companies is this lack of awareness around at the end of the day, you have to build a business that works. Even if the unit economics don't work today, at some point they have to. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Welcome to Superhumans at Work by Mind Valley. I'm your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and before we get started, tell me, if you could change anything in your life, what would it be? Would it be your body, your career, your relationships? Thankfully, you don't have to choose. As a Mind Valley member, you'll get instant access to the wisdom of world-class personal growth teachers and programs that can evolve you in every way for just $2 a day. Are you ready to make a change? Start transforming your life today at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. We're going to have a great conversation today with two gentlemen who have just released an amazing book called Levers, the framework for building repeatability into your business. And this is going to be a book that takes people step-by-step into finding those key areas where you can unlock growth, predictability in the business, which is things that we all seek as business owners. And even within your career, you're going to get to know what are the key things that you can bring to the table to drive more growth and predictability within the company that you work for, which I promise you will actually bring you a lot of benefits, not only in the way that you're recognized at work, but you're going to develop those key skills that are so sought after by a majority of individuals and companies around the world. So Amos Schwarzfarb has actually been a managing director at Techstars in Austin. He has more than 15 years of experience in sales leadership and strategy experience in software, digital, advertising, and entertainment. He has authored a book before about Sell More Faster, the ultimate sales playbook for startups. And now being a co-author in this book is going to be bringing a lot of his ideas to the table. And we have Trevor Bain, who's actually a venture partner at Saturn Five, also did some work at Techstars where they got a chance to be connected together. He's invested in over 45 companies and programs, including in partnership with Amazon Alexa Fund. And they are coming here to bring their personal and professional experience to really help you grow as a business. Gentlemen, welcome to Superhumans at Work. It's a pleasure to have both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. I really wanted to kind of kick this off with your experience in venture funds. You worked at Techstar. This is a big fund that works with startups. What is it that you've noticed in companies that I'm assuming you were looking to invest with that maybe were not having the access to these levers that you speak about? What were the pain points you've noticed that kind of motivated you to put this work together? There's several things, but the biggest trend, and I would say this trend has been happening over 15 or more years, is this push towards entrepreneurship, where entrepreneurship has become a career path for some people, which is much different than really what it was born, which is an entrepreneur is someone who they're going and they're building a business because that's the way that they know how to earn a living for themselves. And in that transition, I think one of the things that has happened, particularly with the onset of the massive amount of venture capital available, is that it's enabled people to fund ideas And even ideas that have some traction behind them. So I don't just mean the back of an envelope. You might actually have a product built and you might actually have a couple of early customers. But because there's capital available over the course of time, 
the trend that we've seen is that there's been this step away from how do we actually make a business where the economics work, even if they don't work today, how do we know that they work in the long term? Personally, I think for me, and I think Trevor would say the same thing, one of the frustrations in meeting so many companies is this lack of awareness around at the end of the day, you have to build a business that works. Even if the unit economics don't work today, at some point they have to. And so the whole concept of how we help entrepreneurs, forget the book for a second, is based around how do we give them the tools to understand how to build a business that is metrics-driven and data-driven so that they can understand, is there even a business that can be built here that's economically sound? And if so, what are the ways to get there? What are the levers that you have over time so that you can build the biggest, most successful business possible? I'd love to jump in and talk about how there is this access to capital today. There are these startups that seem to be coming. I think 2020 ended up having the most amount of IPOs going up, a lot of fundraising happening as well. Are you seeing trends that, I don't want to jinx it by bringing this up, but remember in the late 90s, you had the dot-com bubble and there was a lot of people with domains and internet business, anything with internet was just getting a lot of money thrown at it. Then you'd see a lot of people throwing parties, but there wasn't any solid metrics or foundations around the business. Have you seen something similar happen in the industry these days? Yeah. It has just always been the case. I'm going to jump in, even though Trevor and I typically ping pong when we do stuff together. But the reason I'm going to jump in on this one is because I lived through that. So you said 15 years. I've actually been building businesses since the early 90s. So I lived through that. And there are some things that can look similar from the outside. I don't think it's exactly the same. And I don't think it's fair to make a comparison. But what I do think that I learned... I helped build a business through that period that was successful when everything else was failing. And then a few years later, when the economy crashed again, I built a business that was successful while lots of other businesses were failing. There's a couple of common things between those two businesses. The biggest ones have to do with the principles in this book, which is how do you know when you're providing value to someone? How do you measure that value? And how do you build a metrics-driven business around that value? But your question is, are there some similarities? Sure. There's also a lot of differences. But I think the whole concept of entrepreneurship has evolved since then greatly. Then in this case, I'd be curious to know, what is the system that you've brought forward with levers that makes it so that companies are more prepared? Are we seeing that startups, are they lacking access to the information of what is necessary to make their business scale with the route foundations? Or is this something that they need to add to this toolkit that most people ignore? I'll jump in here. It's less about information and more about understanding which questions to ask and then what kind of data to go get to answer those questions. What we see and what we seek to help entrepreneurs do is that way too often founders, solo entrepreneurs, teams are seeking external validation for whether or not their thing is going to work or works. Instead, if they can figure out how to turn that inwards and understand, okay, what is it at the core, at the sort of most fundamental level are we trying to do? And then how do I get data to prove whether or not that thing can happen in the world? That's the key. And then what ultimately is created is this comprehensive understanding of how the business works, sort of a literal and conceptual model of the key drivers in the business or the key levers in the business. We have five core questions. They're really simple questions. We're not the first people to think them up by any means, but we put them together into the book and attach a framework and a workshop, really kind of an end artifact to each of those questions that allow you to get at that goal of building a metrics-driven model. 
Love it. So if I'm somebody listening to this podcast right now, I'm a business owner, what would be one of these questions? Maybe the ones that most people might not even be putting at the front of their mind that when it's missed creates a huge gap in how to make their business more scalable and how to make it scale. Is there something that people should be asking themselves much more often? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is probably the most basic and sometimes the most surprising. And it's Amos's, Amos wrote this chapter of the book. The question is sort of a series of three questions. We call it W3. And it's, who is your customer? What are they buying? And why are they buying it? And while that might seem very obvious or sort of superficial at first glance, if you actually dig in deeper, you see there's a lot of power into it. Who is your customer? Not just sort of who broadly is your customer, but your goal is to try to get as narrow as you possibly can onto the answer of that question so that you get to a point where if you find this customer is narrowly defined in this way, you are 100% confident that they're going to say yes. You may not always get there, but that's the aim. The aim is to be able to get to a yes 100% of the time because you've defined your customer that narrowly. And then the second piece, what are they buying? There's a small nuance here. It's not what are you selling? It's what are they buying? What are they actually getting for your product or your service? And understanding that distinction and really digging into, okay, what is the true motivation? What is the true problem that you're solving for that customer? That's where the magic is. And then the why is really starting to get at measuring the value. How does the customer actually measure the value of the thing they just got from you? That is powerful. And I love going into these spaces because it's often something overlooked. We kind of organically fall on who these customers are, but we don't take the time to kind of define it more precisely, which brings me to kind of two questions here is one, if I have a fear of defining a customer so specifically that it actually would alienate anybody else, is that a myth or is that a reality? I'll stick to this question before I expand. Yeah, I love the question and we get the question often. And so I think the differentiation that a founder needs to make in their head is the difference between what they're doing now to prove that they're right. Because when they're starting out and even early on when they have a few customers, they only have conviction, but not data to prove it. So how do you prove you're right today so that you can get to repeatability, separating that out from reaching your entire town? So in your mind, you could say, yes, we will service every single human on the planet at some point, but we're not going to be able to do that all at once with limited resources. So what is the systematic approach to figuring out who do I know I can service with 100% certainty today? And the picture you can put in your head is building this long list of attributes on what that customer looks like. Once you understand that attribute set, you can start to play with those attributes and expand on your TAM until one day you service the whole world. It is okay to feel that tension like, well, am I limiting myself? And the answer is yes, but you're doing that so that you can prove you're right, find repeatability, and ultimately get to the scale you want. I love that. Yeah. And it's also like, if you try to speak to everyone, you speak to no one, you would often hear that kind of lingo being thrown around just being like, Hey, if you're not being specific, you're not seeming like you're solving a specific problem for anybody, which that second part of the question that I think is also very crucial is if I want to go down this exercise, how specific and what exactly are the data points that I should be looking for? And should I be doing interviews? Should I be conducting surveys? Is it all of the above? If I'm wanting to get started with this, what are the most effective things that allows me to understand better? Who are these people that are buying? In my opinion, there is no substitute for going out and having conversations with people. Even if you are a consumer facing company and you're like, well, how am I going to have a thousand conversations? 
that's the job that you have right now. That is your responsibility if you want to go build a business. And so I think to Trevor's point, he may have said these exact words, but I'll just restate them if he did, which is that we're not saying this is easy, but the concepts are simple. The work is really, really hard. And if you want to have a successful business that's going to be around for 10, 15 years that is servicing every potential customer, regardless if it's consumer facing or B2B or enterprise or SMB, it doesn't matter. Roll up your sleeves, go have a lot of conversations, learn a lot, be prepared to be wrong about your assumptions a lot, but it's okay. And just keep triangulating towards getting right. And, you know, serving a bit more towards the other parts of the question is just asking them, why did you buy? What were you trying to solve? What was the pain? Like really asking these questions that allow you to get more of an identification of what's the real solution they're looking for and whether they choose you in the process. Is that correct? Yeah. And don't be afraid of the answer that you don't want to hear. In fact, look forward to hearing the thing you don't want to hear because you'll get some of your greatest learnings by that. And it'll give you the biggest opportunity to say, okay, I had this assumption and I was wrong. Why was I wrong? How do I use that information to build something better and bigger and more directionally correct? And in some cases, you may find out, hey, I was just wrong. Or I was right, but I'm not the right person to do this because the job is too tough. Love it. And just to see, you can also get some really interesting insights through that process of things you might not have seen otherwise. One of the founders we work with loves to ask the question to his customers, how would you describe our product in your own words. And when you have them actually restate for you what it is for them and what it does for them, you end up getting all kinds of stuff you might not have expected otherwise. You say, oh, actually, I didn't even know that was a thing that was important to you. And then you can push that even deeper and say, okay, well, if that's the thing that it does for you, or that's how you would describe it, how would you measure the value you're getting from it? How would you know whether or not you had value from the product? And then again, you'll get all these really interesting answers. And then you start to get more and more close to something that's quantifiable, something you can go out and then test against. Before we continue, I just want to tell you a little bit about Mindvalley membership. For all of you personal development junkies like me out there, growing in one area of your life just isn't enough. That's why we made Mindvalley membership to bring you the best personal growth programs on the planet so you can evolve every day in every way. Whether you want to get crazy fit, build a business, or manifest more money in your life, there's a quest for that. And now you can access every single one for just $2 a day. So if you're striving to become the best self and live the life you deserve, try out Mindvalley membership at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. I have to share one story. Number one, I love what you're saying because I 100% agree with it. And I remember when I was working at Mindvalley, I was in charge of launching a product around energy clearing session. I was skeptical. I went to try one. It was a lady, Christy Mary Sheldon's, for those who are fan of Mindvalley would know about her work. And I went through it and I was like, nah, it doesn't really resonate with me. And I was like, hold on, I'm not, I'm not the buyer. And so I ended up calling the people who bought the year before. And I still remember this one man, his name was Chuck. And when I had conversations with him, I asked him that question. He said, it's like, describe what this product is. And he said, you know what, Jason, every time I do this, it's like a happiness booster pill. And then he ended up telling me all these benefits that he got from it, from reducing medication, getting a stable job, all these things that were transformational. So I actually took not only that information to kind of understand how to tighten up my sales and marketing message, I actually wrote an email to the entire list, which was called Chuck and the Happiness Booster Pill. And it ended up being an amazing content piece that I was able to share with everybody else that was so relatable for other people who wanted that same experience. So 
I love this framework. I highly encourage it. And it's simple, but you just got to roll up the sleeves, like just go make those calls and get into the conversations. I think it's so powerful. Any advice for anybody who's maybe listening to this saying like, well, yeah, but I don't have any customers at this point. Do you still recommend market research? Like where would you get started? I'll answer that. But the one thing I just want to jump in with is the thing we're talking about right now is one of the five steps of the levers framework. So what we're talking about is important and it's only step one to figuring out, can you build a business and how do you build a repeatable business? So I want to make sure I point that out. So the answer to your question is it's okay if you have no customers, it's okay if you have no product. In fact, I would make the argument this is where you should start having those conversations. Way better to figure out now what you should build, how you should go about building it early on, what is the most efficient and inexpensive way to build it so that you can continue to build validation along the way. So to me, this is the most responsible method to take, which is, yeah, we're entrepreneurs. We want to move fast. We want to see our dreams come true. But the responsible thing to do in terms of setting yourself up for the best opportunity for success is to slow down go have a lot of conversations, then figure out what you can duct tape together the cheapest way possible to validate the conversations you're having. See if you can get anyone to pay you. If you can't, that's a data point you should dig into deeper. And if you can, it's okay if you're working, doing things that ultimately you will not be doing because you haven't built out the thing that can scale yet. It shouldn't scale yet. You don't have enough validation. No matter how much conviction you have, you really don't know until you have people paying you and telling you they love you and telling you they're never going to go away. Love it. Here's a question that you can ask yourself if you're in that position. You can start with that first question of who do I think my customer is? So if you don't have any customers yet, who do I think they will be? Who do I think they are? And then write that down, however narrowly you can define it. And then take a step back, ask yourself the question, well, how do I know that? What allows me to have conviction that that's true or not true? And you're going to come up with something. You're going to say, well, because I am that person or because, you know, I read a bunch of articles and I found that it seems like this is a thing that's happening in a bunch of places. Or I got surveys back from a thousand people. Every person said, yeah, I'd be interested in buying. As you do that, you start to see, okay, this is why I've come to this conclusion. And then you could start to sort of push on that and say, okay, well, how much would I really be willing to bet? on that data, on that answer. And you may find that actually it maybe isn't enough just to get people to raise their hand and say, yeah, I'd be interested in buying, or it's not enough just to be myself. So what would it be to push that even further? What conversations do I need to have? Who do I actually need to be in front of? Or whose behavior do I need to change in order to reach that level of conviction that Amos was talking about? I love it. Now, I want to pick on something within your title here, which is all about this building repeatability in your business. Now, as you mentioned, Amosin is the fact that there's five levers. We're only talking about one here, but you know, most people, when they look at the business, what they think they need more is more profit or more revenue, or, you know, I need to scale faster yet here. You're focusing on the word repeatability, which kind of seems to give a clue as to what is necessary to get what you want. Would you be able to elaborate more on why did you specifically choose that? And what does it mean in the grander context of the problems you solve? That is a word that Trevor and I have used a lot in our working with literally the hundreds and hundreds of founders that we've worked with over the years. And the notion is we think about business stages rather than think like, oh, my stages, I'm pre-seed or seed or series A, or I'm a bootstrap founder. Like those aren't stages. Those are events that happen relative to a financing or not. 
And we've tried to extract that out and say, you can have raised $20 million and don't have repeatability in your business, or you could have raised zero and have a ton of repeatability and know exactly what the levers of control are. So how do we extrapolate that out? So to answer your question more specifically, if you think about business stages, there's an idea where you're just noodling around at a coffee shop and saying, this thing could exist. Then there's some sort of testing the theory phase where you might be having conversations or looking for co-founders or just pressure testing. You might not even realize you're doing it consciously, but that's essentially what you're doing, right? You're starting to, to socialize it a little bit. And then there's this early MVP product stage where you put something in the world and you're trying to sell it or trying to get people to use or whatever, but you don't understand actually how it works. When we talk about repeatability, what we're talking about is a deep understanding of the levers that actually move your business so that you can get to things like revenue and profit and increase customers. And you know that when you pull a specific lever in your business, you have a really good idea of what will happen in a repeatable way. And the way that we think about it is a lot of people will jump from, hey, we've got a few customers, we need to scale. If you scale before you have repeatability, you will inevitably either fail or break a bunch of stuff because you don't actually know what you're doing. And so that repeatability is the difference between being able to scale successfully or not. Once you understand how to be repeatable, then you can say, how do I scale my repeatability? You're still going to break a bunch of things regardless, but you will understand how to scale the business that you have because you understand the things that are actually repeatable. Using marketing as an example, you will truly understand if I put a dollar in to this particular channel, what will I get out of it? And in what time frame? and how does that work? You might only be putting a dollar in. That's the understanding the repeatability part. The scale is turning that dollar into 50 or 100 or however many dollars. Brings me to this idea that is it very common within the startup field, especially with this available capital, where it's like, okay, now we have a ton of money. Our investors want to see returns. They want us to scale faster. So they end up dumping a lot of money. It's like advertising kind of the bucket that burns the most dollars without even having that idea of how exactly that translates into results for the company. It's kind of just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Is that still a common practice or is it like that doesn't cut it anymore? It's not uncommon, and it very much depends on where you are and who your investors are. And I also just want to make a note, we're talking about capital being widely available. It is still not easy to raise money, especially for people who are listening to this and thinking how awesome it would be if we were able to actually get a little money in the door. One, it is not easy. And two, to this point, right, it's not always a gift. Because if you've got a bunch of capital and then you don't know what to do with it, you end up spending it on things that don't create the results that you want. And sometimes that's pouring a bunch of money into strange and non-producing marketing or advertising dollars. Sometimes it's just hiring a bunch of people. One of the most common examples I see is founders who don't have a clear understanding of how their business works, just trying to throw people at the problem. And then they bring all these people who all have their own ideas of how to get to repeatability and scale. And then you end up, to Amos's point, sort of fracturing and falling apart. Mm. And then specifically the fact that you actually cover so many different departments in the work that you do. I mean, you talk about the sales and marketing, product design, operations, and finance. Is there one of these departments that is usually the first to have issues whenever you're trying to build this repeatability? Is it each of them have their own problems or is there something that seems permanent within the startup space that you really don't want to get blindsided by? 
I wonder if Trevor has a different answer than me, but my opinion is it really depends. It depends on the founder's experience. It depends on what their background is. It depends what their area of expertise is. For example, if they're if they're a first-time founder, but they've been building sales organizations for a long time, they may deeply understand the concept of getting to repeatability in sales and may not have any clue to how to think about that from a product building perspective. Transversely, if you have someone who has a deep product experience, even if they've never been a founder or even at a startup before, they're probably more skewed towards doing research and building the product along the lines of market research. So I think there's a lot of it just depends. Yeah, a company is very much a reflection of the founder's DNA. And so you start to see that emerge, especially as it grows, right? Whatever biases, whatever strengths, whatever weaknesses that are in existence in you as the entrepreneur, those will start to have ripple effects. And you just have to be aware of them. You have to know where your strengths are, where you're more likely to have gaps or blind spots and then bring people in or be aware of how to cover for them. I love it. You know, I can just think of myself the marketing and sales, I'd have taken care of product. I'd probably taken care of finance and operations. That's probably where I'd get a lot of people swearing. And it would kind of be some lagging indicators and mess going along the way. Because if you're in a startup space, I guess at some point they do break things as almost you were making reference to. And it kind of gets into the space of a bit of chaos. What you're doing with levers here is trying to get people to understand where are the places they need to pay attention so that the chaos can be a little more tolerable, or at least having some anchor points that at least you have these foundations in places. Am I getting this correct? Yeah, Trevor loves to say something and he'll correct me when I say it, not as perfectly articulate as him, but at a very high level, there's three things you sort of get out of going through this framework. And I can talk about the first two, but the third one we talk about is feeling less out of control. And it builds to that, right? The first is being able to communicate and articulate what it is that you do across the entire organization alignment across the entire organization. And that could be two people or 200 people, doesn't matter. And then the third is, you know, I used to say more in control, but really the truth is that an early stage company, you're always out of control. So it's feeling less out of control. Anything to add to that, Trevor? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think you said it well as well. There are too many unknowns, even in a business that you have a ton of experience in, you've got a lot of clarity, you're all on the same page, you're rowing in the same direction, you still have control over so few things in the broader environment, in the broader world. And our hope is to increase that just a little bit, right? How do we actually just slowly, slowly begin to increase the realm of control and then in so doing, be able to build the business we want and ultimately the world we want? Love it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with me here. This is really key for the people that are tuning in and that are looking to build a business. If this is resonating with you, definitely go pick up a copy of Levers, the framework for building repeatability in your business. I'm really glad we went over this whole ecosystem that exists around startups and the typical problems they face. Yes, there's chaos. Yes, there's things that can be all over the place. But once you've kind of passed that MVP and you want to start looking at things that can be repeatable is really what's going to unlock some of these elements that are going to be a little less chaotic, at least giving you that predictability as you grow. We went deeper into one of those levers here talking about how, when you start getting more clear on who are the people that are buying, why are they buying and what is the problems that they're facing when they go to buy your product, then you can actually have an idea of who are the target people that you should be repeatedly 
being able to get them to convert, to become buyers and to continue helping you scale the business. Doesn't mean you're eliminating the rest of the world, but having that target, that bullseye allows you to scale more predictably and really make the most out of who benefits the most from the products that you have. We went into all the different areas. I mean, you can apply this when it comes to marketing, product, operation, finance, but every single company is a little different. What you're going to want to know is repeatability is going to be a great tool that allows you to have that scaling, have that predictability coming into the business so that you can go and scale. You can start showing numbers that make sense, get that alignment. And again, lowering that chaos in the process. Gentlemen, Amos, Trevor, thank you again so much for coming on the show and sharing these insights and everybody tuning in. Be sure to stay superhuman in the process. Thanks for having us. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you haven't signed up already, be sure to check out Mindvalley Membership. Besides getting unlimited access to our top-rated programs and trainers, you'll also join an incredible supportive community on our new Connections app. This is basically a global campus where you find like-minded friends, mentors, and accountability partners from around the world online or get together at local meetups. If you want education that connects you with kindred spirits and transforms you from the inside out, join the tribe at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman today. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.